Oh, what a sweet and wonderful time of worship. Good evening, dear Living Water family. I'm glad you're here tonight. Let me start with a question as we open up our Bibles, the First Kings 19. Does anyone here ever get discouraged? Well, there's a whole bunch of hands. And is there anyone here that has never gotten discouraged? Glad to see there's no hands sticking up right now because we all go through times of discouragement. Well, tonight's message from 1 Kings 19 verses 11 through 21 is entitled When Discouragement Turns into Victory and, and we need victory over discouragement. But let's just back up a little bit and remember that the prophet Elijah is on the run from Jezebel, this, this wicked woman who had threatened him with his life after Ahab reported to her all that happened in this challenge between the prophets of Baal and, of course, Elijah and the one true and living God, this challenge on Mount Carmel. The 450 prophets, they couldn't get Baal to respond. So they cried aloud when this failed and the craziness of themselves is noted here too that they, they cut themselves and, until blood gushed forth. And then Elijah's God, well, consuming the altar, the wood, the stones, and the sacrifice in an instant, and then the prophets being slain. And all of this is what he reported to Jezebel. She wasn't expecting to hear this. She was expecting a great victory. And recall that Jezebel is the one that introduced Baal worship to the northern kingdom of Israel. So there's a lot riding on this. There's a lot behind it, a lot at stake. Well, Ahab shared the public humiliation of Baal and the death of the 450 prophets, and of course it was a public humiliation to Jezebel. And now she's furious, and she wants Elijah's life. So Elijah, being afraid, fled and hid in a cave. And I'd like to just back up a little bit and read verses 8 through 10. It says, And he, speaking of Elijah, arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And he came thither into a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous or zealous for the Lord God of Israel. In other words, I've been, I've been doing the work of the Lord. And the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. When I look at this passage in the life of Elijah, I wonder, what is it that would cause such a bold, powerful, fearless prophet of God not only to quit his ministry, but also wish to die? And I see a couple of causes. The first cause of Elijah's discouragement, he's filled with a sense that what he's doing doesn't make a difference at all. Certainly the victory at Mount Carmel, but where was the fruit from that? There doesn't seem to be any. In fact, the children of Israel, they, it says that they forsook the covenants, they threw down the altars, slew the prophets with the sword. And Elijah said, that's not much fruit there, and I'm the only one left. The only one left. They seek my life. The account on Mount Carmel, on Mount Carmel excuse me, 
Elijah, discouraged, he says, I'm going to die. Nothing. There's nothing else to show for my life. And that's one of the most powerful weapons that the devil uses. And that is dis- discouragement. To discourage God's servants to try to get them to call it quits from the ministry. And Elijah's been serving for about four years and he thinks he has little to show for it. How often God can call us to do something, some area of ministry, either here within this fellowship or outside of this fellowship, and we look at it, at what it is that we've invested so much time in and, and look and wonder, where's the fruit in this? I don't see the fruit in it. What, what difference am I making? Is it really worth it? And this kind of thing is very real. If I feel like getting discouraged or be being discouraged, I can go to past church directories and learn back in 2008 that 24 out of the first 30 names are no longer fellowshipping with us. That can be discouraging. And it's like, well, what did I do wrong? Why did 24 out of the first 30 names in that directory, why did they move on? But I need to remember that the people belong to God. You are his sheep. You are the sheep of his pasture and because you're his sheep in his pasture it means that he's got a plan for you and then I look a little further in you know into my own heart and I realize that praise God people are still coming here to worship and it blesses me and there's still six out of the first 30 and they had directory that still fellowship with us and I say praise Jesus but know when you feel discouraged Remember, you're not the first or the only one to feel that way. It's common to mankind because the enemy knows what cards of discouragement to draw and which ones to deal to us. So we need to understand where it's coming from. Discouragement does not come from God. Discouragement is from the enemy. Well, the second cause of Elijah's discouragement is this, that his expectations weren't met. Things didn't turn out like Elijah thought they would or or that they should. God didn't do the things like Elijah thought that he should have. And that's a very, very powerful discouragement in a Christian's life. Think about this. When we look back at Elijah's life, he never even complained about being fed by ravens. You know, God delivered food to him in this in this drought in the land. He never said, oh, God, can't you give me something else? No, he never complained about the ravens. He never complained about the drought or the streams being dried up or being fed by a widow and her son. Those things never discouraged him. But Elijah has a weakness. He was discouraged because Mount Carmel didn't have the spiritual impact he thought that it should have had. It didn't bring the revival he thought it would bring. And here he is giving it his best effort and a nation is still in apostasy, still practicing evil, still worshiping false gods. It's like, God, where are you in all this? Ahab and Jezebel are still in the picture, and God didn't destroy them when he could have. Or perhaps Elijah was thinking as he should have. And worst of all, Mark Carmel, instead of being a place where things turned around for goodness and godliness, God allowed Jezebel to threaten Elijah with his life. But the biggest problem Elijah has is not Ahab and it's not Jezebel. It's his problem with God. 
verse 10 once again. And Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. They th they've thrown down thine altars and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. He's going on a rant, isn't he? We could call it a rant. Going on and on. He sees his world crumbling around him. Nothing is happening as he thought it should. There's Now he's got anxiety to deal with. He's got confusion to deal with. He's got depression to deal with. Has that ever happened to you? When things didn't seem to go as you would have thought or would have liked. And you go on some kind of rant with God. And you begin to talk to him and say, God, I, I just don't get this. I don't understand why things are happening like they're happening. What's going on? What am I supposed to do? I thought I did what you asked me to do, but God, things aren't lining up to my expectations. Talking, talking, talking with God. And then you hear his voice. And where Elijah is is a very real place in a Christian life. And it's a difficult place to be. So we can kind of understand how Elijah's feeling. He's not doubting the power of God. He knows God is powerful. God demonstrated his power. But he's doubting the wisdom of God and the ways of God and the timing of God. And let's face it, there are some people that have a crisis of faith. And their crisis of faith occurs because of lack of faith. On the other hand, Elijah has a crisis of faith because he has faith. He knows God. He knows what God is capable of doing in, in just an instant in God's perfect will. And his whole life has been one miracle after another. Elijah has seen these things. So he has a certain expectation. He knows that God is all-powerful, but, but God, why aren't you moving? Why isn't there a revival? Why is this nation not responding in repentance? So Elijah's struggle is, is knowing that God can, so why isn't he doing it? Well, the lesson here as it relates to Elijah, he got discouraged, and we get discouraged. All of us do. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't care about you or your situation. But what it does mean is our emotions, our physical mind, our physical body don't always respond with the kind of faith we'd like to have in order to overcome this discouragement. You see, that's our humanity, isn't it? And the interesting thing in this entire scene is God does something wonderful to lift Elijah up and out of the crisis that he's in. And notice what God does. He does three things for Elijah to bring him out of the crisis of discouragement. The first we find in verse 11. And it says, And he said, Go forth, God speaking, and stand upon the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord <clears throat> excuse me, passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. The first thing God does with Elijah is he reveals to him the fact that he's doubting God's wisdom. So God is going to teach him a little bit more about God's ways and God himself. So as Elijah stands on that mountain, a great wind passes through, so great that it tore into the mountain and broke rocks into pieces. And God miraculously protected Elijah. 
God wasn't in that wind. So then God sent an earthquake, but he wasn't in the earthquake. Then a fire, but God wasn't in the fire. And then a still, small voice. And God was in the still, small voice. What the Lord was speaking to Elijah and all Elijah types since is not all of life will be lived on Mount Carmel's, on the mountaintops. Sometimes we, we go down into the valleys, but the valleys are very, very good for us too if God sent us there because they're rich and the soil is rich, they're water. So valleys can be a time of learning and growth. But we need to understand it's not always going to be about God's presence and power and what we consider to be extraordinary things like, like the wind and the fire and the earthquake. And God is speaking to Elijah that he's not any less God or any less powerful when things are quiet and still. Yes, God is still working. He is still powerful. His presence is as real and mighty even in the quiet and the still He's still fully active, he's still fully engaged, he's still fully in control, he's still fully God, even when life seems so still and so quiet. So he's teaching Elijah not to judge his service to the Lord by the wind, the earthquake, the fire, the super extraordinary, and at the still small voice seasons in life are important works of God's Spirit also. Well, this isn't easy for Elijah to learn. Because his personality and his experience demanded that it always had to be earthquakes, wind, and fire. God sent fire from heaven and consumed everything on the altar and the altar itself. And I believe that Elijah came to expect that. So maybe he's thinking God's presence is, is lost. But that's not true. And God is showing this to him. He's bringing Elijah to understand that the still quiet voice of God is just as powerful as an earthquake wind, or the fire. And when you consider the creation account, didn't God speak all of creation into existence? It wasn't some explosion. It wasn't some big bang. It wasn't fire sent down from heaven. No, God spoke all creation into existence, demonstrating his, his power to create, his power to sustain, his power to keep now, the second thing God does to bring Elijah out of discouragement is found in verse 13. And it was so when Elijah heard it, the still small voice, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? In other words, once again, what are you doing here? It's the same question that God asked when Elijah fled to Horeb and hid in a cave to escape Jezebel. And once again, Elijah gives God the same speech. God heard it all before. But he doesn't berate Elijah. He encourages him by giving him the next thing to do. Verses 14 and 15. And this is Elijah's response to what doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of, Is of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. They've thrown down thine altars and they, they slew the prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. What God is saying here 
In verse 15, he said to him, Go, return on the way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. God listens to Elijah, to, the, to his response to, What are you doing here, Elijah? And then he gives him something to do. And by doing so, God is saying, listen, I'm not accepting your resignation. And I'm not going to allow you to die. And it's really kind of humorous. Because if we put ourselves in Elijah's place, calling up to God, God, I want to quit this ministry. Aren't you listening? Can't you see I can't do this anymore? But God wouldn't accept Elijah's resignation, but rather said, go, return to the wilderness of Damascus. The post that you left is there waiting for you. And while on your way, I have some things for you to do. Anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And verse 16, And Jehu the son of Nimshi shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room or in your place. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. God simply tells Elijah what he's to do next. He didn't give him an option to quit. He said, listen, I just want you to go. Go anoint Haziel, Jehu, and Elisha. And by the way, the name of Elisha means God is my salvation. So he's telling Elijah, you can't just sit here. I want you to press on. And Paul the Apostle gave a similar instruction in Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14. He said, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Well, maybe God is speaking to you tonight. Maybe you're in a dark place or a discouraging place. Maybe God's saying, listen, I want you to press on, to move forward, press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The reality is many of us are governed by our past because we allow it to govern us. You know, the experiences of past pain or hurt past rejection whatever from the past that, that the enemy wants to just creep right into your heart to discourage you Paul says press on this is a new day in Christ in fact every day is a new day in Christ Psalm 118 verse 24 says this is the day which the Lord hath made we will rejoice and be glad in it he said, we will. That's a choice, isn't it? It's a decision that we must make. So take your life, whatever it is. The good, the bad, the ugly, young or old, rich or poor, sick or well, hurt or suffering, pain or sorrow, and put the past in the past. And then do something else. Paul says, forget those things that are behind well, why is that? Because you can't possibly reach ahead. You can't possibly press toward the mark or the finish line if you're looking backward. 
How many of you have ever seen a NASCAR driver running the race with his eyes focused behind him? Head turned around to the rear while driving forward. Well, you'd say, that, that's foolishness. It'd be impossible to stay on course. It'd be impossible to win. Yet so many people, Christians included, allow their spiritual course to be directed by their past. Looking back, blaming the past, blaming a parent, blaming this one or that one, blaming my upbringing or my experience at another church. And Paul said, listen, forgetting those things that are behind. Let me tell you what Jesus said to a group of men that made excuses for not following him, not moving forward in faith and trust. Luke 9.62 And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. The nation of Israel, after being freed from the bondage of Egypt, they kept looking back and it prolonged their journey by 40 years. That which should have been a seven or eight day journey took 40 years. Why? Well, they kept looking back to Egypt, the place from where God had freed them. Don't look back. Well, how can I forget those things which are behind? Because memories cast long shadows, don't they? Well, here's how. You can forget those things which are behind by looking ahead. Looking forward. Maybe you're dealing with guilt. And let's face it, we all have things in our past that we regret ever having done. And they can trouble us. Some things that we've said, things that we thought, actions that we did. But the question is, will you allow them to direct you? Or will you accept the truth that you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ and now are able to move forward as the new creation that you are? You know the verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. In the book of Isaiah, Chapter 43, verse 25, it says, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and I will not remember thy sins. Elijah 44, 22. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. You see, when we look back at our past or past failures, we can begin to be discouraged. But you know what, family? Looking at our past failures, hurt, or struggles, it stands as a barrier to future success and victory in Jesus Christ. That's why we're told to press on. Psalm 56, verse 8. Thou tellest my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle, are they not in thy book? What the psalmist is saying is that, that God knows every single tear you've shed and he knows why it was shed. And he stored them up. In other words, he doesn't forget about them. So if that's the case where he knows your grief, where he knows your tears, where he knows your sorrow, then why not simply surrender those things to him? 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be God, even the Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Psalm 147, verse 3, He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. Jesus said in Luke 4, 18, I have come to heal the brokenhearted, and that's what Jesus does. But he can't heal a broken heart that hasn't been given to him. Have you given him your heart today? Or someday in the past, have you given him your heart? He wants it. He wants to minister to you. Well, Elijah is overwhelmed with discouragement. And God is sharing with him, don't be so overwhelmed by the power and the amount of evil in this world. Elijah, I, I simply want you to take your place in the big picture of mine and leave the big picture to me. Just do the one thing, one step at a time, and leave it to me. Well, Elijah's lament, what difference will my life and my ministry make? It doesn't seem to matter. And God's response to Elijah is this. Elijah, it's not your problem. The world's not your problem. The nation of Israel isn't your problem. And you see, Elijah types want to save the whole world and take on responsibilities that aren't theirs to take on. And it's a recipe for failure and discouragement. Self-blame because it didn't work out. It didn't work out because me, because of me. I caused it. I'm inadequate. And on and on and on we can go. But God would say, it's mine to work out. You just do what I've asked you to do. And Elijah types need to be reminded of that because they tend to take all the weight upon themselves. And this lesson is so needed for those that take on the character of Elijah. And we can look at our lives and examine them and look at the big picture and say, what difference am I making? What change am I facilitating in life? Is it because of me? Is our state getting better? Our city? Our country? Our our world, our church, our families, what difference is my life making? And we ask that question because we want our lives to count. But God says, leave the big picture to me. Just do the next thing I'm asking you to do, and you will succeed because I'm in it. And we can do that, can't we? We can do the next thing that God asks us to do. And you can be assured of success because God wouldn't ask you to do something he hasn't equipped you for. Just do what he asks and no more. And you know, sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, we want to get our hands on as many things as we can to try to satisfy the Elijah in us. But God says, no. Only do what I ask. So he said, Elijah, return to Damascus. Well, there's a third thing that God does to bring Elijah out of this crisis of discouragement. We find it in verse 18. God said, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Remember in verse 10, Elijah said, I only am left. He said it again in verse 14. And God says, Elijah... You're sadly mistaken. 
My plan doesn't depend on you. I've got 7,000 times the resources that you think I have, Elijah. And God's plan and God's work in this world is never dependent upon anyone as weak and unsubstantial as we are. It doesn't depend on us. It depends on God's grace and His greatness. And it's, a humble, it's humbling to hear this, that it doesn't depend upon us. But certainly, no offense, it all depends on God and His work. And when we begin to embrace that, that it's all because of you, God. I'll do my, my part that you asked me to do, but the results are all in your hands. The big picture's in your hands. And when we realize that, it's freeing. Because it brings a proper perspective to our lives that, that life doesn't depend upon me. And the world is not going to crumble when God takes me home. Elijah thought his ministry was over. And that his life was over. And I'm sure he never imagined how God would use him as he crossed over from his crisis of faith. Well, what did he do? Well, he would anoint Elisha to be the next prophet. And Elijah would continue to be a powerful leader. Elijah would later divide the Jordan. He later would give to Elijah a double portion of his spirit. Elijah prophesied Ahab's doom. And God would take him to heaven in a flaming chariot. It's incredible. Elijah would have never, ever imagined that. And years later, Elijah would be on a mount of transfiguration with Moses and Jesus. And then also in Revelation chapter 11, it's likely that Elijah would be one of the two witnesses sent by God to witness to the Jews during the Great Tribulation period. Who could have imagined that? Who could have come up with that? Elijah had no idea what God had planned for him in his discouragement. God's ways are not our ways, nor are his thoughts our thoughts. But remember, God is working in the quiet times. Do the next thing God asks you to do. And remember, it doesn't all depend on you. Just stay faithful to God and watch what he does in you and through you. So, verse 19, he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and with the twelfth, and Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. Well, it's interesting because God gave Elijah the name of a man in order to anoint him as prophet. So Elijah had to go looking for him. And when he found him, he discovered his preparation for ministry. What's his preparation? <coughs> Excuse me. The preparation is Elisha is behind a plow and a yoke of oxen. And it's important for us as Christians who want to be used by God and want our lives to make a difference in my world, that when you find yourself in the place of Elijah, discouraged because things didn't go your way, don't respond to the discouragement. Respond to God. God, you've asked me to do this. I am going to take that step. I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. And God knows where every single one of his servants are, and he has a plan. He knows how to prepare us, and his preparation for every one of us is unique. 
You know, God has prepared me for what he's asked me to do in a certain way. He's prepared you for what he's asked you to do in a certain way. And it's wonderful to see God. We don't put God in a box. But God knows what it's going to take to fashion us and to shape us and prepare us for service. Elijah, Elisha, excuse me, was prepared behind a plow. Think of Moses. He was herding sheep for 40 years in the desert. 40 years in the desert to prepare him to lead the nation of Israel. I think of David who would become the king and God was preparing him by tending sheep in the field, teaching him how to be a shepherd to people. I think of Daniel in the lion's den. The three Hebrew, Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace where Jesus met them. I think of Joseph. Preparations made in Joseph's life as he was being sold into slavery by his brothers. Falsely accused. Imprisoned. And God used all those things to raise him up to the number two authority in all the land of Egypt. Think about John the Apostle exiled to Patmos. They tried to get rid of him. Couldn't, couldn't kill him, so, well, let's just ship him on out to this forsaken place. I'm sure they thought it was a God-forsaken place named Patmos. And I don't hear a single word from John the Apostle complaining. You know, God, I've been serving you all my life as an adult, and here I am. I'm out here on this island all by myself. God, don't you know that I am an apostle, capital A, apostle, and this is what you're doing to me or with me? God, this isn't fair. But no, we didn't hear those words from him. Not at all. He waited on the Lord, and the Lord brought the entire revelation of Jesus Christ, the end times description, right to John the Apostle. In all these cases, God's ways of preparation were perfect for his call on their lives. And God knew right where Elisha was and how to prepare him for his ministry. Verse 19 tells that Elisha, Elijah cast his mantle upon Elisha. It speaks of passing power and authority of his office to another. And Elisha knew exactly what it meant. And his response was decisive. He responded immediately. He left the oxen and ran, verse 20 says. He ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? It's an idiom, meaning do, uh, do as you please. He had Elijah's blessing in that. But he was decisive. And we need to be decisive too when God gives us an instruction or a direction. And if we're not de decisive what's going to happen, we're going to flounder, we're going to get discouraged, we'll begin to question God. So be decisive. Elisha was faithful. He immediately left his former occupation, went to say goodbye to his family. Verse 21 tells us this, And he returned back from him, the he being Elisha, 
and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people, and they did eat. Then he arose and he went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Elisha left the past in the past and he moved on in obedience to his call. He arose and went after Elijah and ministered to him. And the word ministered means he served. He served him. In order for Elisha to become a leader, he had to first become a servant. It isn't that what ministry is. It's serving the Lord and serving his people. And you know, I can think of many examples where young men would, would come up and say, I want to be a pastor one day. And I would say, well, that's, a, that's an honorable thing. He who desires the office of bishop desires a good thing. But you need to learn to be a servant first. Because if you can't be a servant first, it's not going to work. And sometimes people that, that get these degrees from seminary, and I'm not down on seminaries, I think they have a place, but they believe that's an entitlement to jump into the ministry full-time as a, as a pastor. But it has to be God's calling. It has to be God's ways. It has to be God's strength that gives you the authority to do what he's asked you to do. It's not about a piece of paper. It's about God. In Matthew 20, verse 28, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many.